Welcome to the Top Advisor Podcast, brought to you by Proud Mouse Pod Rocket Academy. I'm your host, Bill Cates, creator of the Cates Academy for Relationship Marketing. In each episode, I interview one of our industry's top performers, getting them to pass on their secrets to success to you, so that you can impact more lives and generate more income. Now, on to the show. Welcome, welcome. You know, before we get going, I want to let you know about some free resources that I invite you to retrieve after you've listened to today's interview. You'll find checklists, guides, videos, and other tools. Simply go to referralcoach.com forward slash resources. Now, write this down unless you're driving. Referralcoach.com forward slash resources. While you're there, make sure you sign up for our weekly tips. We're always sharing best practices, and we'll notify you of our newest podcast interviews as they go live. And while all of these are free to you, I think you'll find them quite valuable. My special guest for today's episode of Top Advisor Podcast is Sandro Forte. Sandro is the CEO of the Forte Financial Group, a highly respected and successful financial planning firm in the United Kingdom. Sandra's in his 33rd year of this business, so he's experienced the ups, the downs, the all-arounds of the financial services industry. He's won numerous awards for his service, and his best-selling book, Dare to be Different, has been published in eight languages. Mm -hmm. Sandro is involved in a number of philanthropic endeavors, uh, having raised over $20 million and counting. He's hosted the Sandro Forte podcast for at least three years, and he's delivered presentations all over the world other financial professionals. Sandro Forte, I was going to say all the way from London, England, but today you're in Toronto because guess what? You're presenting to other financial professionals. Welcome to Top Advisor Podcast. Thank you, Bill. And uh, you and I go back a long way and uh, I've always looked up to you that, and that's not a throwaway comment. It's meant sincerely. You and I go back a long way and in all that time you've been at the top of your game. So I salute you and it's a great honor to be with you. Oh, well, I appreciate that. Thank you. Uh, boy, I don't even pay him for this. This is wonderful. Uh, so, you know, before we get into some very meaty strategies and tactics that I that I know our listeners are going to uh, appreciate and find helpful, just give us an executive briefing of your practice, such as uh, who you view as your ideal clients these days, your support team, and anything else you think will give our listeners just a bit of context about you that uh, they can use for your remarks following that. Well, thank you. I think the first and most important thing to say, Bill, is is the one I'm most proud of, which is I've been in this business for 33 years, as you kindly said, which does make me feel very old, I have to say. And in all that time, we've never had a client uh, advice or service related complaint, which I'm very proud of, because many advisors around the world can talk of uh, what they stand for, who they are and what they do for their clients. But ultimately, clients vote with their feet. So that's probably the best place to start. We are a small boutique business. We have two partners. That's myself and my long-suffering partner, Mark, who uh, specializes purely in mortgages. I do all the um, regulated advice work. We have a support team of seven, so we are by no means large, but we do look after an extremely large amount of money. Uh, Clientele-wise, that's evolved over the years, Bill, but I would say largely high net worth, ultra high net worth, sports stars, celebrities, business owners, and dare I say, a royal family as well. Wow, that's now there's a lot of royal family. I don't know how high up the hierarchy this goes. <laughs> well, yeah, uh, pretty pretty high. I'm pretty mean, high up. Huh? We're talking good. we're talking princess level. Ah, well, I guess I don't call you your Majesty or your Highness, do I? But uh, 
maybe for today we should do that. Anyway, <laughs> good stuff. Um, now, I know that you're known for helping advisors get in front of more qualified prospects in the most efficient way. That's kind of what I'm known for as well. And we, we both know that while that's important, that that's not the ultimate goal. The ultimate goal is to win them over as a new client, assuming, uh, you know, to bring them across the finish line, assuming that, that it's a good match, that it's a win-win for everybody. And I know you have some specific thoughts and ideas out of how, as, as to how that's best accomplished. So assuming we have a desirable prospect in front of us, how do we get them to say, yes, let's work together? Well, I think the first thing to say, and this is uh, this may sound somewhat profound, but I, but it's a very important point to make, Bill, and that is that for for centuries, for as long as financial services has been going, I think there has always been this paradigm that um, a yes means success and a no means failure. Mm -hmm. So you know, a sale, and I don't think the word sale is a swear word, by the way, but we've always focused very much on the outcome. Whereas what I've tried to develop over the last 33 years is the process, because I believe if you get the process right and, you know, there's no greater exponent of the process than you, Bill, in terms of all the, the good that you bring to advisors around the world, you understand only too well how important it is to have a skill set, to have a process. And if you get that bit right, the outcome takes care of itself. Compensation, commission fees, whatever you want to call it, I, I genuinely believe that takes care of itself. On the subject of paradigms, there's a whole bunch of other things that when I started in the business in 89, at the age of 21, young, impressionable guy, <laughs> though I was, I kind of looked at various different aspects of the business. And I started to question why I was just following like another one of those financial services sheep uh, in terms of some of the things that I was being told. And, and at a very basic level, I was being told that there were certain words I had to use, like the word appointment. And I did some research on this and I realized very quickly that if you use the word meeting, you're 17% more likely to get the client to stick with the arrangement you've made rather than cancel, because that's what people do with appointments. Uh, and the word referral, which is one very close to your heart, I changed that to uh, personal introduction because I wanted to do what it said on the tin, which was to have a happy client personally introduce me rather than give me a name and a telephone number. And then there's a bunch of other paradigms like the excuses we use, we, we call them reasons, but they're actually excuses. <laughs> but, you know, a global pandemic means we can't advise clients in the way that we used to. Uh, the economic downturn means that we can't have conversations with, with people about financial stuff and investments in particular. And then there's one other really important one on a more general level. And I liken that and link that to my own personal story, which I know you're familiar with. And that is my father was a very successful restaurateur come from a lot I come from a long line of uh, families that originated in Italy in the hospitality world and my father back in the 70s was running a very successful business I was the eldest of four children age seven um, my mum was 21 years his junior stay-at-home mum and we we obviously relied on the income that he brought into the family all of the trappings of a successful family life and then my father contracted cancer and passed away uh, two years later. Now, what was really significant about that is that the paradigm to which I'm uh, alluding here is that people would walk past my father, Leo, in the street bill because metaphorically in their head, they would say, Leo Forte, successful businessman, 
uh, must already be getting advice, doesn't need the services that that we that we offer. And people have these preconceptions and preconceptions manifest themselves all over our, our profession. And I prefer to call it a profession rather than an industry. Mm-hmm. Um, and it is that which leads to apathy. It, it's that that leads to procrastination and those excuses that I've already mentioned. Mm-hmm. So the obvious question is, how do we uh, how do we move away from that? And there are obviously a number of things that I'm sure we'll talk about and, and a lot more besides. But but I suppose two really good examples would be one of the things that I do at the first meeting, because I am a great believer that we should all look our clients in the eye to answer your question. And the question or the statement we should be making in our mind's eye is, you need me more than I need you. And historically, it's never been that way. We have automatically as a result of all these paradigms, adopted this subservient approach where subconsciously there's this communication going on between advisor and prospective client that basically says, I'd love to be your advisor, please say yes. Mm -hmm. And the problem is the moment that you adopt that, that positioning and positioning and process are two words you hear me say all the time. The moment you adopt that position, you give control to the client. And that's why they say, I want to think about it, come back in three weeks, I'm too busy. But the moment you position things in such a way that you create equality in that relationship, like all good relationships should be based, you change the dynamic of that relationship. And that's a really, really key part. So to give you a specific example, in a first meeting, I start by creating the rules. And I'm not talking about the ice breaking. I'm not talking about the fact finding. I'm just talking about the bit that I need to establish before we go any further And that quite simply has two rules. So if if you don't mind me role playing it, I'd simply say, Bill, the reason I think we're meeting today is for two reasons. The first one is we are going to decide whether we can build a relationship. Do we like each other? Do we trust each other? Is there an opportunity to work together in the future? That's number one. The second one is, can I help you? At the moment, Bill, I don't know whether I can help you or not. What I will be doing with your permission is gathering confidential information and then seeing whether or not I can add value to your current situation. However, the quality of advice I'm able to give you, Bill, is based entirely on the quality of information you give to me. So I've done two things. The first one is establish a set of rules that basically says we work together. You choose whether you hire or fire me, but I also choose whether I hire or fire you. It's really important. And the second one is disclosure and accountability of the advice that I'm subsequently going to give you. So in other words, you don't say, I feel uncomfortable about giving you that information Uh, Can you come back to me? Oh, I feel a bit awkward because I'm handing accountability. And again, that's a that's a a big dynamic change to the way that most advisors, as I say, very subserviently ask for information, ask for for referrals, personal introductions as well. That Mm -hmm. kind of awkward. Now you've become a client, Bill. I'd like to think the service I've provided has been of value. And, you know, inevitably, when you approach it in that way with a distinct lack of confidence, inevitably the answer is I can't think of anyone um so we could go on talking about this all day I want to keep my answers very succinct obviously because I'm mindful of time but but that is a really good example of I think where a lot of advisors go wrong so what you're talking about here is is the framing at the very beginning and I think that is important uh it it shows up in a lot of different ways and if by setting the right frame at the very beginning all the other things that you do and say afterwards are going to work better. Uh, there's a, you reminded me, there's a concept that I learned a long time ago in psychology called transactional analysis. And really what it measures and is the, or looks at 
is the way people communicate, the way you expressed it. So when a, a lot of sale, quote unquote, salespeople or people put themselves in that role, it's like a parent to child uh, dynamic. It's like as the salesperson, as the advisor, hoping that they're going to say, yes, we we become almost like that needy child and standing in front of the critical parents. And that's not a healthy dynamic, right? And what you're trying to do is create the adult, healthy adult, a healthy adult conversation, first of all. So we have every bit as right to be uh, to be there as they do and vice versa. And, and two adults were qualifying to figure out, does it make sense you know, for us to work together? So I think uh, that that's pretty important. And it's a subtle thing that I think a lot of people don't even realize they're feeling that that childlike energy, if you will, uh, when they're meeting with prospects. You also, I think, said something that, you know, roundabout way that words are important. The words that we use, the actual words that we use, not just the concepts, but the words that we deliver uh, to clients are very important. So it sounds like you're pretty careful and thoughtful about choosing the words uh, I noticed you put confidential in very strongly when you were talking about gathering information. Talk to me just a little bit about your intentionality around words and, and how important you believe that is. Well, I, I just well, first of all, I'm I'm speaking to one of the greatest wordsmiths I've ever come across on the on the speaking circuit. <laughs> so uh, I, I'm I'm struggling to answer that question because you're better to do that than me. But you know, I, I think that um, to answer your question directly, I I studied English, I studied psychology. Mm -hmm. And um, one of the things I think that we we just leave too much on the table. We don't we don't deep dive enough. We just take what's given to us by managers and trainers, no disrespect intended. Mm -hmm. And we just absorb this stuff and then regurgitate it. We don't start to look at it. You know, the, the Japanese car manufacturing theory, take someone else's idea, dismantle it into its component parts, improve all the component parts by 10 percent and bolt it all back together again. Mm -hmm. um, you know, no, no speaker, no trainer, no coach is can can expect to turn up to a conference and convince everyone to tear up their existing business model and start again. But if you can find tiny ways to improve outcomes and words is a great place to start. You know, there's 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 definitely um, lots of evidence to support the fact that the words we use subconsciously and consciously can be very powerful, can lead to completely different outcomes than if we use the wrong ones. Um, mm -hmm. There's a whole bunch of other words that we use um, as throwaways. Earn is a negative word, not a positive word. Uh, you know, the word insurance, throw the word insurance into a conversation and subconsciously someone's always already running away from you. Um, so I, I think to answer your question, very, very important, something that too many people take for granted. So I've got to ask, uh, earn a bad word, insurance a bad word, what do you use instead? Well, the, the word earn can be changed to enjoy or make, because if you earn money, you are less likely subconsciously to want to give it away, to pay an insurance premium, for example. The word insurance protection is, a, is an example, obviously, depending on the context. Um, but I think what we're really saying here is it doesn't really matter. There's no right or wrong word in terms of your interpretation just don't use the industry words that have been you know um put in front of us without at least asking yourself does this work for me if it doesn't you know what's the alternative if it does great but if it doesn't what's the alternative yeah make, makes a lot of sense so in this process of 
as it's often said, getting to yes, uh, assuming it's a match, assuming that you want to work with them and you believe you can bring great value to them. Uh, objections, resistance, uncertainty uh, on the part of the prospective client comes. So how do you how do you deal with that? What we, I know we're getting very tactical here, and I know the, our listeners love the tactical stuff. But sometimes mm-hmm. they say to me, "Bill, just tell me what to say, and I'll say it." You know. Um, so give us a little info around the objections, if you don't mind. Well, there's, there's two two things here, Bill. The first one is, what can we do to prevent objections happening in the first place? You know, I, I've for 33 years I've heard people say, "Oh, here's how you close a sale." I don't believe in closing at all. If you do the first bit right, if you get the process right, the outcome, as I said earlier, should take care of itself. But on the subject of objections, to my earlier point about the two two rules at that first meeting, I also get the opportunity because the client, I have a captive audience at this point. I'm saying, here are my rules, Bill. Uh, This is how we can hopefully work together, but it's your decision as well as mine. But then I also get the opportunity to to throw on the table, deal with the elephant in the room. And that might be my age, my lack of experience. It might be a previous bad experience that the clients had with an advisor. It might be a stated objection of the profession. It might be some bad news in the newspaper. It might be the economy, COVID, it could be a hundred things. But that's my opportunity to say, Bill, let's deal with these. And two things happens. One, I dramatically reduce the chances of an objection later in the process, which obviously speeds things up improves commercial value for both client and advisor but also what it does is it generates subconscious trust because it shows me to be authentic and transparent if you wait for the objection uh, then of course you're always on the back foot and now the client's in control of the process again right however um, i'm not suggesting that that methodology is going to work 100 percent of the time inevitably during the process something crops up they've they've read a newspaper article between meeting one and meeting two, and they raise an objection. Mm-hmm. On that basis, if you get an objection, there is a, to my mind, and I've studied this and I've shared it with 500,000 advisors around the world in 85 countries, and it works in every single case. Uh, and, and to position the objection handling technique, it's a three-step uh, process. Um, I just want to very briefly mention the difference between left brain and right brain. Right brain, as we know, is the emotional emotional attachment to something it's the way people think about things process information very much driven by emotion and on the left side of our brain we focus very much on logic and just as little caveat as a by the by one thing that advisors fail to realize bill is that in order to make a decision clients have to be both emotionally and logically attached to something you can't simply sell the emotion any more than you can just sell the logic the important thing is to get the balance right between the two am i attached to it does it make sense? And if the answer to those questions is yes, you have a relationship. The three-part process is very simple. Well, the, the first two are simple. The third one takes a bit of practice. Uh, step one is to 100% welcome the objection. That's not agree with it. It's to welcome the objection. And too many advisors over the years I've heard say, when a client, for example, says, oh, I haven't really got any money, they say, well, I've just completed a fact finder and you've got $400 a month of net disposable income. Now, that's challenging the client, but it's also creating conflict. So the one thing to do is to welcome the objection with words like, Bill, I'm so glad you mentioned that, or thank you for being so honest if it's of a more personal nature. And then and by by welcoming the objection, we disarm the negative thoughts in the mind of the client. And again, as a little aside, 
I, I do laugh when I hear people say objections are a buying signal. Not not necessarily sure that's true. No, it's um, definitely not necessarily true. <laughs> no. Yeah. Um, and then the the second part is empathy, the building block of all human interaction and relationships. And you can create empathy by simply saying, if I were you, Bill, I would be thinking the same way. That's mm -hmm. empathy right there in a single sentence. Mm -hmm. The bit that takes some practice is what comes next, because if one asks a logical question, a left brain question, the answer will always be yes, 100 percent of the time. So words like, is that OK? Three, three words to use regularly during the fact finding process, because it affirms a statement that is obvious, that's factual. Um, so when we come to the objection handling technique, we welcome the objection, we create some empathy, and then we follow the logical question. So to the example I've just given you, I've got no money. What I would then say, and if I were you, Bill, if I could show you how I work with my other clients, so I'm, I'm not confronting you and making it personal, it's called the principle of consensus. If it's good enough for others, it's good enough for you. If I can show you how I work with my other clients to create money they didn't have before they met me, would that be of value? And the words of value must always end the sentence, not to you, because then it becomes emotional. So would that be a value? Now, it is impossible to say no to that question. Now, that doesn't mean to say that my technique is going to lead to a client relationship, because there may not be an opportunity to do that for whatever reason. But I am at least getting the client to engage with me to better understand what the problem ultimately is. So a couple of things here. First of all, I think you made a very important point, and that is the first part is if there's an objection, I'll call it a recurring objection, uh, an objection you seem to get a lot, mm -hmm. whether it's the money thing or I'll think about it or whatever seems to happen quite often in your process or to speak proper English process, uh, <laughs> then then you want to bring it up, right? You want to bring it up on your terms. You don't want to wait to have to be reactive. Yeah. If you get, I think about it a lot, you probably want to say, now, if I were in your shoes right now, I'd probably think be thinking, maybe I need to mull this over a little bit, right? Or, or whatever words you use. And now you've brought it to the table. You can deal with it on your terms, uh, honoring them, and then not have to react to it, right? So that's the first point. And then the second is the formula. Not unlike the formula I teach, uh, in the first, in my formula, it's it's like acknowledge and uh, uh, and explore, and that is, to, to like you said, to honor the objection. It's okay, right? It ma makes sense. Someone says I don't like to give referrals. Yeah, I get it. I know some people don't. Then hmm. I often say, can you tell me more? That's a phrase uh, that I've found works very well, also with objections. And I'm curious that your reaction to that because. If, if, if someone says money, think about it, whatever, makes sense. If I were in your shoes, I, you know, I'd probably be thinking the same thing. Tell me more. Well, yeah. What are they going to do? They're, they're going to tell you more, aren't they? <laughs> and now you're learning a little more about the objection. So if you could react to that a little bit, I'm curious how that fits in in your philosophy and, and things you teach. Yeah, I, I think just taking one step back to the point you made uh, prior to the Second point you made very, very uh, articulately, <laughs> um, you know, when I was I was 21 years of age when I started the business bill. And I, I'll be honest, I look 14. I've always I've always been lucky enough to look a little younger than I actually am. I'm 54 now. Um, but I was 21. I look 14. Honestly, it was embarrassing. And I knew it was a problem. 
And mm. I knew that if I didn't deal with it, it was going to be a problem for my prospective client as well. So I dealt with that right from the beginning and said, right, Bill, before we go any further, I know exactly what you're thinking. And you can see, you know, husband and wife look nervously at each other as to what they're thinking. And I say, I know you're thinking, you know, what is this young lad going to tell us we don't already know? Mm. Well, the fact of the matter is I have all the requisite qualifications and I can offer you, Bill, one thing that very few other financial advisors in the UK can offer you. And I would pause and they'd look nervously at each other. And I could and I would then say, and that's long term service, Bill. And they would and they would <laughs> laugh because I'd, I'd say it tongue in cheek. But actually, there was quite a serious undertone because all good uh, clients who are committed to the financial planning process want longevity they want to have a 20 30 year relationship they don't want their advisor to die before they do and right. so that became my usp i mean i was i was going around heralding the fact that i was a i was a young advisor so what i'm saying here is that sometimes what we see on the outside as being a potential problem on the reverse side of every challenge there is a solution you've just got to look for it instead of trying to find tiptoe your way around the problem flip it upside down and turn it into your advantage. Um, a bit a bit like the current situation we find ourselves in, we are living in a world where despite the, the horrors of a pandemic and so many of us have lost loved ones or known somebody that has, that's created the greatest opportunity of a lifetime. Why? Because people are more aware of their mortality now than they've ever, ever been before. Mm. Um, so the, the tell me more uh, bit that I've, I've heard you say many times, that's, and my biggest challenge is a bit of a chatterbox is silence, is inviting someone to give you more information. Um, very, very powerful tool to use in any form of communication. Asking open-endedly, uh, without any filter, just give me some more information. Tell me where that information comes from, where that right. brief conception comes from. Let's deal with it. But the more open and transparent and authentic you are, the better the relationship will subsequently be built. You reminded me of the the the, the youthfulness of of um, your appearance, and you're right. You do look young uh, for your age. I know I don't look a day over ninety five. Uh, and th there was a, an advisor I used to work with a long time ago. His name was Bruce out in San Francisco, uh, and he was one of those types of folks that looked young all the you know always looked young for his age. And so when he first got started in the business at around age 22, 23, obviously he looks very young. He could see a visceral reaction from the folks that, that met him for the first time. He could literally just kind of see that reaction that, oh, this guy's so young. So he did turn it to his favor uh, around the referral process. He'd say, you know, when you introduce me or when you recommend me to others, let them know I'm young, but I'm really smart. And so that would create laughter, which is always a good thing. Mm -hmm. And, and that's that what they, that's what they do. Uh, they didn't, people didn't care if he was young, if he was really smart and really knew, you know, could bring some great value to the, to the conversation. Yeah. So good stuff. Uh, I have two more topics, strategies I I'd like to discuss with you. I want to hear your ideas about uh, how you can sustain a successful business over time, which you've done and related to that, how financial professionals can become more productive and more profitable over that period of time as well. But first, let's take a brief pause to listen to a word from our sponsor, Pod Rocket Academy, who makes this podcast possible. This podcast is sponsored by Proudmouth, the Influence Accelerators. Proudmouth. 
If you're like our clients, you want to spend more time educating people and less time selling. That's why we turn Main Street experts like you into trusted mainstream authorities. We help you amplify your influence over a growing audience of magnetically attracted fans who will chase you down instead. Visit ProudMouth.com to learn more. Be your own loud. As we get back to our interview, I want our listeners to know about our on-demand video-based program that will allow you to learn almost everything I teach related to client acquisition, particularly referrals, introductions, communicating your value, creating productive relationships with centers of influence. We offer listeners of Top Advisor Podcast a 200 membership fee reduction to our academy, the Cates Academy. So when you get a minute, head over to thecatesacademy.com. That's thecatesacademy.com and use the coupon code TC200. It's all one word, TC200, and you'll save $200. My featured guest on this episode of Top Advisor Podcast is Sandro Forte, super successful financial advisor based in London, England, talking to us from Toronto. Sandra, uh, I, I promised our listeners that I'd like to get your views on ideas on how any financial professional can help ensure their long-term success in this business, in this profession, the word you said you like to use. What does it take to sustain one's success over time? Well, before I answer the question, TC200, I'm going to remember that code because I think I'm going to sign up, Bill. Well, <laughs> you're welcome to. Yeah, <laughs> I'd, get I'd love to. Um, <laughs> so I, I think that the way to answer this question best is, and, and I know this is kind of a bit way out there and a lot of people it may not necessarily resonate with. This is the one thing I'm going to ask people to just take purely on trust. Uh, and that is, and you know this, Bill, from all your experience, it's all well and good having a toolkit. It's all well and good having the skills. But unless you have got the basic foundation, those skills are never going to turn themselves into commercial value. And what I mean specifically is having the right mindset. And I'm not talking about positive mental attitude. We can all listen to a motivational speaker or read a great book and feel a million dollars. But the reality is uh, the space between today, the intention to do something and tomorrow, whenever that is, that gap in between is called interference or life, actually, in, in its most simple form. And, and it is all the things that happen in between those two spaces or in that space that creates all of our challenges. So uh, one of the things that I did many, many years ago, I've been practicing this, this for over 25 years, and it's no coincidence that that has aligned itself with the greatest uh, amount of success in my career, it's, um, it's a very simple technique. It takes some practice and a lot of commitment, but it's called mind changes. And all it is, is a series of positive affirmations, which one writes down on ideally postcards. You need 20 to 30 goals. Now, a lot of people say, hang on a minute, I haven't got 20 to 30 goals. But if you really think about a goal being anything from tidying a drawer at home, that's been driving you crazy because you keep looking at the job thinking one of these days, I'm going to get around to doing it to what you're doing with your family at the weekend, to the promised story you're going to read your kids, right the way through to the most unrealistic of goals. And by the way, I don't think unrealistic goals are anything worth an, other than having in your in your toolkit because I remember when I was eight years old and my mum patting me condescendingly on the head when I said I wanted to be an astronaut. And she said, because of the classic paradigms of life, you might want to rethink your goals in life. So sometimes having unrealistic goals is a good thing 
because actually I found that the further I aim, the more likely I am to exceed my expectation. Because people, the reality, Bill, is people fail in life not because they aim too high and miss. Most people fail because they aim too low and hit. That's the reality. Mm. Mm-hmm. So this technique basically is a series of 20 to 30 goals, short, medium, long term. Big, it doesn't really mix it all up mm-hmm. across a whole range of different topics. Health, well-being, family, business, doesn't really matter. And all that one does, one has to have two rules with these cards. The first, and these are only very simple statements, one paragraph maximum. And each goal has to make a statement Number one, as if it has already happened, as if you've already achieved the goal, for the simple reason that our subconscious mind, which is ultimately where this is going, does not know the difference between what is real and what is imagined. That is a matter of fact. And the second thing is we need to describe how we felt when we achieved the goal. Counterintuitive. It makes no sense. But what we do, a bit like the way we learn to drive a car or walk or talk, we went through a process of picking ourselves up from that first initial failure when we tried it for the first time and repeated the process over and over and over again, except this one, we're just repeating the process of embedding goals in our subconscious mind so that success and the thought of success, the way we speak, act, walk, talk, build relationships becomes subconscious rather than conscious. Um, I'll say no more than that. We have to go through a process of at least 30 days of reading the cards, ideally at the same time every day. You don't study them, learn them, dwell on them. You just read them like words in a book. 20 to 30 cards will take you two minutes. And ideally, before you go to sleep, have a quick read, put them down, forget about them to the next day. Over the course of 30 days, because that's the habit forming minimum period of time that we need to embed these things, we will start to think differently, act differently, and importantly, rather scarily, more people will start to migrate towards us. We start to create this kind of aura of confidence and trustworthiness. It is remarkable. There's lots of data. There's lots of science behind this. It's not some crazy idea I've just thought up on the spur of the moment because you've asked me the question. Mm. Uh, So I would say humbly that this is probably the biggest contributing factor to my success in business, whatever success is, different things to different people, but certainly to all of those that I've shared it with around the world. It reminds me of some of the research I did for my book, Radical Relevance, around how the how the brain works. And one of the things that's at play here, not to get too super technical or scientific, because I'm just not capable of getting too technical or scientific. And I do know that this is what starts to create the new wiring in the brain, the overwiring. We can't erase wiring. What's in our brain is there, but we can overwrite it. And we overwrite it with habit, habit of speak, habit of action, habit of emotion, like you talk about around this, how we mm-hmm. feel about or how we how we will feel when we reach that goal. So I do know that what you're talking about is based in science. And you know, it's been a long time since I've done something like that. So you, you've inspired me to uh, to grab my three by five cards and do some of that. So thank you. Now, no point in sustaining a business if it's not profitable. Hopefully the goals will be around profitability as well. <laughs> uh, but I know you have a few ideas in this area of productivity and and just in running a successful practice, if you will, not just the longevity of it. If you If you wouldn't mind sharing a few of those, that'd be great. Sure. Well, I think the first thing, Bill, is that um, there's only two ways to be more successful. Uh, Again, success is different things to different people, because sometimes 
if you don't grow financially, but you grow as a person, that's success, right? So um, I will leave each person listening to decide what success means to them. Um, but there's a couple of things I would say. Number one, there's only two ways to grow. Either work harder, which is not palatable for most people, or work smarter. I know that's a that's a sentence that's been thrown around for centuries, but the way that I would um, ask people to visualize that specifically is that most advisors I come across do not know the value of their time. Um, to put that into some kind of context, for every $100,000 we earn in a year, presupposing that we work 220 days of the year, because there are weekends and vacations and so on, and presupposing we work eight hours a day, please no one ever say to me they they work 16 hour days because they don't. They might think they work 16 hour days. They might spend four hours shuffling paper around a desk and drinking coffee, but that's not working. So presupposing we're, we're smart professionals, we're working eight hours a day. So 100,000 divided by 220 divided by eight gives us something like $56.82. Now, what I'm saying here is that if you are worth $56.82, become consciously aware of how many of those hours and therefore how many dollars we give away. The hour-long meeting with our, with our manager, no disrespect, where 10 minutes is really meaningful, the other 50 minutes is a waste of time. When somebody says, can I borrow you for a minute? And it's, you know, loads and loads of examples, Bill. Mm -hmm. If we can focus on increasing the 5682, becoming more mindful about how we use that time, Number one, we end up with a business that we run instead of a business that runs us. And secondly, once going back to what I said earlier, once you then multiply the $56, if it becomes $586, multiply it by eight, multiply it by 220, you end up with a very big number. So being consciously aware of time and the value of it is really important. And what I then did is I created a color-coded diary system where I enabled myself to see at a glance exactly where I was spending my time. So number one, I would decide when I see my clients. I do not let my clients say, oh, next Friday at 8 p.m. Because that's the one time I've got booked with dinner, for example, with my significant other. But we are all guilty of then, you know, putting our personal arrangements to one side to pursue the one great prospect that we've uncovered this year. <laughs> that is not That is not a great way to run a business. And actually... When we negotiate, because I've decided when I'm seeing my clients, if they want to see me at a time that doesn't fit my schedule, all I'm going to try and do is negotiate to get them as close to one of my meeting scheduled times as possible. I'm then also putting in uh, strategic time, which is color coded blue, and then the red time, which is me time. So on time, which is strategic, in time, which is working in the business, seeing clients, and then me time. Importantly, me time goes in first, on time goes second. And in time, surprisingly, goes last. Because if you get the first two bits right, the yellow boxes, uh, the in time takes care of itself. So they would be a couple of really obvious ways because there are lots of very skilled advisors out there, very successful, been in the business for a long time, still getting that fundamental principle wrong and not understanding that actually, if you reverse engineer the process, you can become more financially successful without working harder. You're talking about profitability in terms of, of time. And I think it's a great way to think of it. And, and think about why a lot of people get in this business. Yeah, people want to make good money. Okay, nothing wrong with that. Uh, 
and they want to have flexibility over their schedule. What does money buys? Uh, if, if we do it properly, money buys us choices and money buys us some time, right? If we manage and, and, and handle it appropriately, uh, you know, I'm on the, uh, I, I joke that my empire building days are over and I'm actually trying to work fewer hours. Uh, I love doing the podcast. I love writing. There's uh, I love some coaching. There's some things I love to do. I actually have uh, a clock right now. I'm holding it up to the camera. If you're listening to this, that that's counting my hours up, just like an accountant or a, an attorney might use a clock to count how much time he or she's spending with a client. I'm counting the hours that I'm actually spending working every week. And my goal is 30 hours a week. And I just started six weeks ago and I'm at about 36 hours a week. So it's pretty good, but golf season is ending. <laughs> and now I'm going to have to find some big chunk of time activity because that's the way I do it. I got to make a commitment, you know, with some other guys to, to go out and do something. And that pulls me away. If it's projects around the house, I may end up going to my office a little bit too much. Right. <laughs> I, I forgive me for going on, but it really it's that. I mean, I just interviewed Annette Yoder. It's uh, she, her episode may very well be the one right before yours, uh, depending on how the schedule works out. And I encourage people to listen to that because that's she's talking about a, a million dollar more business working, you know, 30 hours a week mm -hmm. uh, and having a lot of time off. So it's kind of a profitability of time. Uh, which means a profitability of relationships, which means a profitability of enjoying life, right? It's not just the dollars. Um, so forgive my rant, but I think that was a great point that you made. And and I know that you, it's obvious that you like the systems and the process, right? Not just the process for clients, but the process for yourself. Hmm. And you put in place these, these process. Talk about that. I know it's not a question we are prepared for, but you are process oriented. It's, it's like if there's a something you're trying to accomplish or a problem you're trying to solve, you think in terms of a process. True? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I'll give you a really good example of that. Um, Disney, Walt Disney um, and, and the way they operate every single day, they have a meeting and ask themselves the question, what could we have done better today? Um, Starbucks. People don't go to Starbucks for a great cup of coffee necessarily. I know people like Starbucks, mm -hmm. but it's not the world's best coffee any more than McDonald's is the world's best food. But they are process driven. Everyone knows from the moment they walk in the metaphorical door to the moment they walk out exactly what they're going to get. And we know that consistency is another one of those success principles in life. Mm -hmm. Consistency leads to trust. It's as, it's as simple as that. And there's a, a lovely little equation I'm going to share with you and, and the listeners, Bill, uh, and it's one that literally dictates everything I do in business. And it is this, your reputation as a business, put simply, so reputation equals expectation minus experience. And what we mean by that is your mm -hmm. reputation as a business person is the person's expectation when they walk in through the door minus the experience you give them. Now, I'll give you another, if just to expand on that very quickly, um, I deal with a lot of vulnerable clients. So, for example, divorcees, people recently bereaved, people who are feeling a bit uncertain financially, who need a lot more handholding than, let's say, a city trader who's got years of experience in the financial markets. So if I simply adopt what many advisors do, which is this kind of one size fits all service approach, and they they herald and, and celebrate the fact that they offer this amazing service because they come and see Bill Cates every year and they sit down and they have this face-to-face -face review meeting. 
And Bill Cates is delighted if Bill Cates's uh, perception of great service is one meeting a year. The trouble is, if you want some handholding for the first, say, three, six months, I am significantly undershooting your expectation and therefore my reputation diminishes. And I have this question. It's called the killer question. It's really simple. But when I onboard a new client, I simply say, Bill, before we start this relationship and really looking forward to working with you, let me ask you, Bill, what does great service look like to you exactly? And the word exactly is really important, by the way. What does great service look like to you exactly? And you are going to prescribe to me what great service looks like. You're going to say, can we speak every week for the next six months? Can Don't call me, I'll call you. And then as long as I build my service proposition around your expectation, I've got a growing reputation as a business. And going back to what I said right at the beginning, that's the reason why we've done you know so well in terms of service standards and recognition from our clients. And of course, no client complaints, which means greater persistency and therefore greater commercial benefit. Yeah, expectations, very, very important. Um, get Make sure they're expressed and then don't promise to meet an expectation that you're not able to meet, mm -hmm. right? So it's sometimes expectations becomes a bit of a negotiation, especially if someone wants to talk every day or every week. <laughs> yeah. Uh, our featured guest today has been Sandro Forte. His firm is Forte Financial, based in London, England. Sandro, uh, thank you so much uh, for being a guest on Top Advisor Podcast. And also, thank you so much for what you're doing for our change the word industry to our profession. And how I know that you speak to a lot of folks. They value your message. And so between the work you do for your clients and the work you're doing for other financial advisors, you're doing some pretty important work in the world. So thank you for being with us today. Thank you. And keep doing what you're doing as well, Bill. Thank you. I will. Uh, to you, our listener, uh, may I ask you a small favor? If you like this episode or like the podcast in general, please leave a five-star review on the platform you're listening to the show. Not all platforms have a place uh, for reviews, but if yours does, uh, I'd be grateful. Thank you. If you haven't already, head over to referralcoach.com forward slash resources and sign up for our weekly tips and access a ton of free guides, scripts, etc. This is Bill Cates reminding you that ideas do not make you more successful. Only acting on those ideas will bring you the success you desire. Thanks for stopping by Top Advisor Podcast. Thank you for listening to the Top Advisor Podcast. Brought to you by Proud Mouse Pod Rocket Academy. I encourage you to visit my website, referralcoach.com, for links to my books, online courses, and to register for the Cates Academy.